Welcome to a Break in the Action podcast. Here we'll take a break from the tactical and spend our time on the traditional, the Break Action double-barreled shotgun. Join us each week for discussion and interviews centered around vintage and modern shotguns, outdoor pursuits, and sporting literature. So sit back and relax as we take a break in the action. Here's your host, shotgun collector, wing shooter, and sporting clays enthusiast, Ryan Dowdy. My guest today is internationally known shooting instructor Keith Coyle. Keith has instructed both royalty and internationally successful shooters and is the last living direct coaching descendant of Britain's great Robert Churchill. If this doesn't mean anything to you, let me just say that it's a really big deal. Robert Churchill is known as the father of instinctive shooting. Keith describes the Churchill method as being about economy of movement and elegant, efficient gun mounting. Based on our natural ability to point, the Churchill method requires perfect gun fit and when executed properly is devastating on your target. Keith has spent the last 25 years as a course designer, shoot captain, and shooting coach. He was formally recognized by some of the most prestigious gun makers of Europe, the UK, and the United States, including Krigoff, Cesar Guarini, Fausti, and Grulia. Keith also currently supervises the Green Acre Shooting School and serves as their shoot captain for their British-style shooting events. It was my pleasure to chat with him about his journey to becoming a modern-day legend in his own right. Keith, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks very much, Ryan. I've been looking forward to uh, catching up with you for, for some time. And uh, I have to say, at the moment, I'm really great because uh, I'm sitting in my comfy chair, I've got my feet up, and I've got a pint of beer in my hand. Oh, I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> as as, we, as I'm, I'm delighted to say, we, we've just finished um, uh, a private group, uh, British Driven Shoot, the Grand Batu. Uh, we had fabulous weather. Uh, with the weather gods were on our side, as they, I'm very pleased to say, appear to be, despite this very uh, British weather in Illinois, <laughs> changing from one minute to the other. And it's just been great. Though. We had a great group of guns. Uh, the birds had read the script, so they all flew in the right directions. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the food uh, is always as important on a the shoot these days as the, as the, as the shooting. And uh, everybody's gone away um, yeah, pretty happy. Next fact, um, we, threw, we threw the... Not, just, not literally threw them out, but we, we encouraged the last guns out the door only about 20 minutes. 20 minutes to go, so a great day. Thank you. Very good. Well, I think a great place to get started is to hear about your background. Obviously, you're not from the States. Uh, I think we can gather that from your accent. So how did you get started shooting? Okay, well, well, yeah, well what I'll do, obviously, I'm going to try and condense it very much. Now, very quickly, I think the most important thing is that everybody knows is I'm, I was originally a townie. Um, I, I was born in... Uh, as we would say, North London. And we spell that with two Fs. Okay. So I, I, I was born in, I was born in North East London in, in uh, 53. So it shows you old I am. And of course, at that time, obviously, uh, you know, London was still pretty, pretty much recovering from the, the Second World War. I mean, I was a, as a kid, we used to go and play cowboys and Indians and what called the bomb sites. Wow. You know, the, the places where, you know, they uh, hadn't rebuilt after they'd been hit by, by, by the bomb. 
Right, and then what happened, uh, we're, we were all encouraged at that time, my parents were encouraged to move to what we call the Greenfield, uh, away from London. And it was brilliant. So we moved out into the country. Um, you know, so I started to get involved with the country. But my real first involvement with shooting was 1980. Um, I'd just come out of the military. I'd done some 10-year service with the military. Um, I was actually starting my own business. Uh, had a little bit of spare cash. And a friend of mine just said, here, do you want to come and shoot to some clays? And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, guns. Well. So uh, that was the, he took me off to a, a local, what we call straw baler. It used to be years ago, the old um, twice, a, you know, twice a fortnight club. Uh, went there, um, walked in there, and I thought, right, okay, before I do this, not going to make a call. Is there a coach? And there was a coach of sorts, booked in, went off, did an hour, and that was it. Obviously, you, the moment you, you break the first claim, that, that, that's, that's it, isn't it? I mean, you, you are hooked. So I started off in 1980. Um, I was a, a sporting claims, you know, shooter. Uh, the great thing, because all of these old clubs, you know, most of these clubs, we were in the country, so it draws you into the countryside, you know, you, you, and it was just brilliant. Um, shot more and more, became a competitive clay shot. Um, and then purely by accident, uh, one, the, the club I was going to, the little local club, uh, the chap who was the coach, he was taken ill one Saturday. I turned up and the ground owner said, yeah, Keith, Dave's had a heart attack, can you cover? Um, and I went, oh, well, yeah, okay. So I, I really took over. I took some, I started doing lessons. And I'd had taught, obviously, I taught some skills in the army. Um, I also, uh, for running parallel that time, I was a student of Kendo, Japanese fencing. So I used to teach in the dojo. Um, so I really liked it. But did the first lesson, that was hooked. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. So I carried on to, you know, teaching, shooting. And then really, it really did get fairly serious. I was really enjoying it. And I thought, I could do this. I really could do this for the rest of my life. And I thought, right, um, I'm, most importantly, I'm taking people's money. So I thought, right, come on, get yourself properly qualified. And that's what I did. I went on to the Clay Pigeon Shooting Association. I booked on my, uh, what was the first level? We called it the club coach course uh little did i realize that again that was going to completely shift my life into another direction um i go on to the course and the the, the first man who i really meet is mr Roger silcox who was the senior cpsa staff tutor uh and he had he built the cpsa coaching system under his mentor a chap called chris craddock anyway long story short i do this great week uh, well, you know, working it, and Roger sort of <laughs> uses me as the dummy sort of thing. Every time he wants to pick on somebody or demonstrate and not do it, he pulled me out. Um, and then, but we really did. And there were there were moments in the course which um, were my blues brothers moment. You know, when he says something and and the and the shaft of light comes through. And uh, right, long story. And again, uh, we got to the end of the week, and um, someone said, "Oh, Roger wants to see you." And I think, oh. Right, what, what, what trouble am I in now? Because I'm normally in trouble. So um, I go off and I just saw come in, come in. And in the conversation, he said, look, Keith, he said, I would like to offer you the opportunity to come and um, work with me at the Roseswood Shooting Ground, which was in a lovely part of the West Country called Somerset. 
He said, come and work with me at my shooting ground. He said, then, would you like to be my protege? Well, of course, after I managed to get my jewel off the floor, and of course, you know, managed to mumble the word, yes, that was it. Yeah, yeah changed my life. Um, it, was a, it was a big upheaval in a sense for the, because uh, Somerset was on the west side of the country. Uh, I uh, and my lovely wife Brenda and our kids, but we were living on the <laughs> typical, the east side of London, completely opposite side of England uh, in Essex. So it was about a four hour, three and a half, four hour journey for me to go backwards and forwards. Um, but that's what I did. But for the next, well, three and a half years, full time, uh, I went to work and was taught by Roger. And he taught me to be a coach. Um, at 38 years old, I became the oldest gimp junior in the world because um, my job was to go. I, 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 let's say I would arrive late Monday night or, or midnight, you know, on the Monday night, one o'clock in the morning, Tuesday, uh, six o'clock. It would be my job to come out on the on the shooting school area, of course. So I would pick up all the clays, you know, the unbroken clays, fill the machines, change batteries, clean up, get the clubhouse ready, so that all he had to do was physically walk in the door and start teaching. And I remember, literally, for the first three months, I did this, and I lived, I had this wonderful farmhouse, I had my own section of the farmhouse, and I lived with him and Noreen, um, and all I did for the first three months was button for him. Didn't do anything else, apart from being a gimp. But during the day with his lessons, I just buttoned for him. I just was stood there and listened. And then every now and again, he would involve me, he'd ask me questions. And luckily enough, we'd get to the end of the day, normally about five o'clock, and he'd say, have you got your gun here? <laughs> yes, I have. And we'd, we'd, I'd go off and he'd spend an hour with me till we went back for supper. And uh, yeah, so I did. And then I was going back with some boys. I'd finish Saturday night and jump in the car i get home sort of almost about eight or nine o'clock at night back with Brenda and the kids. At that time, I was still running my own small shoot on a Sunday. So again, I'd be up at six o'clock. Lucky enough, it was just down the road. I'd run my little sporting club um, to about two o'clock. Eventually get home about three o'clock Sunday afternoon. Uh, we'd sit down to dinner, spend some time with the kids and Brenda. Um, then Monday, again, I'd take the kids to school Monday night. After dinner, got the kids to bed, up past state, jump in the car, and boom, I was back down to Somerset. Um, wow. So, Sporting Clays really got its start in Britain, right? Um, before it came to the United States. Am I right on that? Yeah, in actual fact, it really started in, in the very late 30s. Um, it, 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 was, it was purely a way for farmers and, and to a degree, uh, game shooters, which was only the aristocracy and the rich, um, they started to shoot it because it, it was shooting uh, or, or trying to equate shooting live game. Hence, uh, in plays, if, we, if you shoot a, a high climbing clay, it's referred to as a teal. Well, of course, the one is the clay that rolls along the foot. And, and of course, the, the incoming clay that slowly comes in and drops, well, it was a dropping dart. So, yeah, third is it started, and then it obviously. After the, the Second World War, it picked up again. Um, it really, really bashed off for, for, for us in England in the very late 60s, early 70s. That's when sporting clubs really exploded. But it was all what I call pretty much straw bale clubs. You know, like I, 
you, you go to a, the, the club will be on the farm, he'd have to run it every other week and, and so on. And although there were a few what I would call professional shooting grounds, it was the heart of it was really, you know, all, all of us lads going out, meeting on a Saturday or you go to another club on a Sunday. So that's how Sporting Clays developed. Coming on to it now, I remember obviously Sporting Clays came to the US in 1982. And it was actually Chris Craddock, who at that time was the director of the CPSA, that was invited over by the fledgling NSCA. Now, obviously, this is what Chris told me, because obviously I'd worked with Chris for a while. <clears throat> and then Chris came over, and obviously, we all knew, we all said at the time, that once this sport took off in America, the, the American element would become the most predominant. Because first, you, you had the, the, the ability, you had all this huge people, number of people that would take it up, and we knew you, had, you would have better facilities. So eventually, so it, it's progressed. Now, there are, there is a, I do believe there still is a difference in what I've experienced here in the US and, and at home. And the way I was taught to set a sporting clay courts. So the, 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 the first thing I was, when Chris and Roger and I was learning, I'd set my own clubs up as well, because obviously I was a competition clay shooter. Um, good sporting clays, obviously, you should have a variety of target presentations. Um, you know, from all different angles, and they should be um, there should be a rhythm. If you get a report pair, that's what I would say to people. There, there was always a rhythm to it. You know, it would encourage good shooting, not discourage uh, good shooting. I, you should shoot clays, and it should be developing your technique, not forcing you to sacrifice technique just to break targets. So for me, one of the things that I've always done is when you get a shooting cage or a stand, is that I was always told that with a report pair, you sh the, the shooter should be able to shoot both targets within that, if you like, window, that picture window, and you shouldn't have to move your feet. You know, if I could shoot both targets with keeping my feet in the same position, if, I had to, if you have to move your feet because the angle on the second target is that extreme, I was told that's a fit-ask shot. Because as you, as you know, you shoot fit-ask from a hoop and you can, you can, move, you can move around. That's, that's what fit-ask was about. And the final thing that I was always told, good targets, you should have a rhythm to it and good sporting pairs, uh, or report pairs particularly, should always have at some point on their flight path a converging point whether it's close or whether it's far away, those target flight paths should always somewhere converge or cross. Now, of course, obviously you get report pairs, uh, a following pair of courses, the same, uh, uh, two birds on same flight path, where, of course, the most common explanation is you keep your finger on the button, so, of course, you get one, two. Um, what is called a true pair here, we would always call the simultaneous pair, and that's a pair literally just, you know, thrown side by side, simultaneous. Um, a lot of that came about because in my day, we only had manual traps. Um, and most of those manual traps were double arm. So, and we had, you had to have trappers. So a lot of grounds started out when you, you originally did the sporting clay course. And if you had 10 stations, they were pretty much all simultaneous pairs until all those traps came in and prepared. 
So the only thing I would say with seeing courses here, um, and I don't want to cause offence because obviously everybody does a great job, but there are some courses that I've experienced here that seem to what I call pander to the shooter. Now, no one wants to make it difficult. You know, I was told that a good sporting course should entertain, um, should maybe challenge a little bit, but it should encourage good shooting technique. Those were the three main things. Firstly, entertain for people to enjoy, uh, be a good mixture of targets that should sometimes, you know, should, should take you a challenge occasionally, but should encourage good technique. What I've seen here initially is that some of the clubs I've seen, there tends to be a preponderance of targets that are being thrown, <coughs> being thrown away or retreating from the stand in some way, shape or angle. And I think that has a lot of uh, influence in so many people who shoot track. Um, so that there is a little bit of that. Um, or sometimes I have seen, <coughs> sorry, maybe time for beer, um, targets, Targets that are on the opposite end of the scale, where you know, they've got no common ground, um, you know, there's no rhythm to it. Um, so would that be like a teal and a rabbit at the same station, where their flight patterns are just uh, absolute opposites? Is that what you mean? or? Well, they, uh, they can be opposite, but they do need to have a uh, a line where... You, you know, if I'm shooting the teal, or put it this way, if I'm shooting the rabbit, at some point where I should, I should shoot that rabbit, you know, that point should be the place where I pick up the teal. Right, like, again, I'm going right to left, and I come up, I shoot the rabbit in front of me, and ideally, maybe, where I shoot that rabbit should be where I'm going to pick up the teal target. So it's always about, you know, the, the pickup point. You shoot that first bird to give you the perfect pickup point on the flight path to pick up the second one. Now, in a sense, if, if like you play Paul, you know, obviously, you know, we play snooker. Um, I say to people, it's like that. Remember, you pop the red, but the key is to get the white ball back in the right place for the color. So that's what you're looking at when you're shooting sporting clays. You want to shoot the first one so it gives you the perfect optimum pickup point for the second target. And, and that's where you get the rhythm. Do you know what I mean? That, that's where you're getting rhythm for your shot and so on. So, in a sense, that, that to me should be what I call true English sporting cane. However, um, now, like God, it's just the same as gold. You know, uh, people get, you know, the moment we start getting professionalism into it, um, it, of course, pushes the boundaries um, of the sport. Um, it starts pushing the competitive level of the sport. Um, and and that, that has a massive change. You, you, the, I mean, one, I'm um, the local to the local ground to me in Chicago uh, is the Northbrook Coaching Club. And of course, they've, got, they've been awarded the Sporting World Championships this year. And I have to say, they really deserve it because it's a brilliant place to shoot. Um, they are renowned, though, for putting on very, very demanding targets. Um, and people go there because of that. 
but they but even so i've seen the targets they set and as much as they're demanding they are the closest ones to what i've seen to to, to having uh this traditional rhythm uh this, this target placement so that that's important but but that's the difference uh, as you say that we all interpret it slightly differently i think the american element has interpreted slightly some grounds in in the past have orientated to what I would call more of the the retreating target, the, the going away target, but but that's because, in my humble opinion, you, you're a great track shooting nation. Just don't forget, track was your big thing, um, and of course, track became popular because, in my opinion, the American you you have a great tradition of shooting rifles. You know, you carry long ones. The Brits never had. We, we, the only time we've ever carried a long arm was was in more, but you don't. So you, you're a great rifle shooting nation. So trap was the was the big thing, because in all fairness, it's the closest a rifle shooter could get to shooting a shotgun like his rifle. And then what changed everything was, of course, skeet. Skeet started. Funny enough, it started becoming popular just in the late 30s. But what really made it popular, of course, was in the late 40s after the Second World War. Because all the guys that were in the American 8th Air Force, all the air gunners, don't forget, they had to shoot 500 skid targets every month to keep their gunnery certificate. Interesting. Because, yeah, and, and, and that, thank heavens for the American Air Force in England, we'd have never had, we'd have never had skid ranges. We'd have never had skid ranges had it not been for the British, for the American Air Bases, the Rod and Gun Club. The Rod and Gun Club. Wow. Yeah. But all the, all all the um, air gunners had to shoot 500 skeet targets every month to keep their air gunnery certificate because it took them forward and down. So the, so the great thing is, then you've got skeet, so you're really great skeet shooters, and then, of course, the door was kicked open when sporting clothes came in 82, but as we said, the, the American, the American uh shooter would become the dominant force in, in sporting clay. Um, I mean, look, look at the great guns that, that are out there. I mean, I was fortunate back in 2014, of course, I was in Abu Dhabi at the time, and I was reporting on the very first Nadal Shiba Gold Cup, which Gabba Miles won. I mean, look at you, you had Gabba Miles, you had Anthony, Anthony Maturazi, great shots. About, and, I, and I do, I, I, Anthony Maturazi, as much as Gavin's a great shot, I think one of the the best American shooters for sporting clays that I've seen in action, without doubt, is Anthony Matarazzi. I think he's just he's brilliant, though. Um, now, it's, it, that, that's though where the sport is developing. Interesting. So let's get back to you. Um, what originally brought you to the States? Well, yeah. well, what, what, what happened, um, uh, it, it goes back literally just to, um, I've been in, Abu Dhabi in the Middle East for five years. I got headhunted to go out to Abu Dhabi to uh, supervise the opening and get the uh, Alpha Zan shooting club in Abu Dhabi up and running and open. Uh, I'd been headhunted for that because back in 1996, I then did the same thing for the very first shooting club in the Emirates, which was in Dubai, but Jablali. Um, so I'd been out there. I got drawn out there. I ended up being with that project for a year uh, and then went on to coach independently. 
I was consulting for various people. There was more other student grounds that I was incorporating and designing. And I was there till 2014. Um, and to be honest, Brenda and I were pretty much yearning to get back to the UK. Um, believe it or not, in 2013, I was commissioned to design a shooting club for the northern Kurdistan, northern Iraq town of Arbil, which at that time was independent Kurdistan. And it was boom time. Like they got the oil you know, after the Iraqi war. Uh, Kurdistan, the northern part, they got all the oil and gas, they were going independent. And I was approached by uh, the, the government there because they wanted uh, to set shooting up as um, the national sport for Kurdistan. They loved it, they hunted, and of course it was a, a, a way for them to get potentially into the Olympics, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I designed the shooting club, Brenda and I pack everything up in Abu Dhabi because we were going to go to our bill which I have to say is a, is a truly wonderful city, because I went there, and two weeks before we did the fly out, up popped ISIS. Oh, wow. So that, that was that plan out. That was that plan out. So I said to Brenda, enough's enough, come on. Came back to England, um, got back, started coaching, set the website up. I was working at a lovely, uh, had a lovely shooting ground called Barbary Shooting Ground, just down the road from where we lived in uh, Wiltshire, which is a, a state in the western part of England. Lovely, lovely uh, place. And then um, literally one day, a member of Greenacres got onto the website, a lady, and she said, uh, I need some help in my shooting. Can you help me? So, yes, I, you know, we give them some advice. And then she said, oh, the club I go to, you know, they do British Devon shooting. I'm like, do they? Crikey. I, I, I only knew, of, I, I knew of that Lars Magnuson at Blix that was, was on the case doing that. And I said, are you sure? And she said, oh, yes, I do. It's brilliant. I got onto the website, and there I saw Dad, Tuffy Dan Erky and his sort of British get-up. And I thought, oh, oh, you know. And I just got um, the club a line and said I was really interested, glad to see it. And the next thing I knew, um, I'm in conversation with Dan. Um, he really, it was more about dogs for Dan. He'd been to England. There's obviously brought back some British, British labs and so on. And of course, Greener, but he, he he could see that the demand for British-style driven shooting in America was on the increase, and it was going to increase. And he said, "What can we do? How can we do it?" And obviously, Illinois being flat, well, you've not got a lot of values and things to work on. And I said to him, "Well, look, why why don't you try simulated driven game? Biggest thing in England for the last fifteen years." And he said, well, what's that? I said, well, it's a driven game day, but we re recreate the day with all the, you know, panoply of the day, but we use clay. Um, and he said, uh, and, and I do quickly add that it's not doing a simulated day, it's just not doing, putting a few traps up on a hill and throwing them. It's a little bit more involved if you want to do it a bit, you know, properly. Anyway, long story short, Dan says, well, would you come over and while you're here, would you, would you run to the right some uh, lessons? Would you, you know, run a lessons and coach? And I said, of course, yeah, brilliant. So long story short, you know, Dan gets me over. We do the very first simulated driven day in America. And this was in 2015. Um, and it, it was great. You know, we, we, we had a, we, I got a big um, paint wagon and we put tracks all over that. And, and it, was very, it was very successful. We did the first down day. It went very well. Dan and I was chatting, and there was definitely, he could see the demand for British driven shooting, and I agree. 
because even back in 2008, when I was running in the state in Scotland, um, you could see the number of American teams of guns, or even individuals, was starting to uh, decrease. Um, because two things, obviously, it's very expensive to go to England and shoot. I think also at the time, apart from the financial climate, which wasn't very good, I think the first real concerns about flying to Europe and the security situation that was going on. Um, and he said, well, look, you know, what do you think? I said, well, I think you've got, it was a great venue, great club, could see the potential. And we just sort of shook hands and said, right, let's get you back. Um, and that's what we did. But it, it took almost a year because I, I, I came back on an O-1 visa and I'm the first ever British shooting instructor to be awarded that particular level um, of, of visa. You, you have to prove international acclaim, blah, 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 and you have to be a publicised author and so on. So anyway, long story short again, uh, we get the O-1, and I come back here uh, in the February of 2016, and that was it. We, we, I just got stuck in. Wow. Well, you've come a long way from those green fields that you left London for as a kid. Yep. Keith, thanks for spending time with me today. Uh, now, you've got a couple projects in the works right now, right? Yep. Um, I think you're working on a book, and I know you've also teamed up with the Project Upland team. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, in, in actual fact, uh, like you, Ryan, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a great, young, great chap, Nick Wilson. He was, re- again, it was one of our members, uh, a Ex really lovely guy, John Longdean. Uh, he was listening to the Upland Project. I hadn't. I'd seen it, and I thought, oh, yeah, must must have a look at that. Anyway, John comes in, and he says, have you heard of it? Yep. He says, well, I'm going to phone them, because they're looking for people. So John phones, then Nick gets in touch, and I do a great podcast uh, with Nick. Um, and leading on from that, um, they have, you know, that the, the, the Upland Project are now doing their online magazine. I didn't realise, though, that the Upland Project is owned by the Northwoods Collective. And they are just, they really are so passionate about about hunting and keeping the skills alive and keeping the essence of hunting alive. And they do help. They, they do a lot of media for hunt clubs, the various hunt organisations. Now, I didn't realise how big they were. Anyway, Nick, we were chatting and it was very successful. Then uh, the, the, the managing director, the, the senior director, a great chap called AJ DeRossa, um, he and very kindly spoke to me. We had long conversations. And ultimately, because of my background, obviously, as you know, the last living or the last working living link to the Robert Churchill, um, and of course, obviously, he wanted to do that. And for a long time, people have always said to me, oh, particularly over the last 10 years, Keith, when are you doing the book? When are you doing the book? And I said, well, if honest, because as you know, my background is I, I was mentored by Roger Silcock. Um, I was then taught my gun fitting skills by Christopher Craddock, who was Roger's coaching mentor. And then, of course, Craddock spent time with Robert Churchill. Now, you know, it doesn't mean that People said to me, when are you going to write a book? And I said, well, in all fairness, do you really think I need to write a book? Because in my opinion, what needs to be said has already been said by better men than me. And and I don't want to ever go at anybody, but there's a lot of people out there trying to convince people they invented the will. 
Well, I'm sorry, they didn't. The wheel was already invented, and it was invented by these great people like Robert Churchill, Percy Stanbury, and all of those people out there. Okay? And I said to them, well, do you really want to what, what? And they said, no, no, you've got to do it, because if you don't, see, the books of Robert Churchill and Percy Stanbury and Christopher Craddock uh, are disappearing. They're, they're, going, they're getting lost in, in the mist of time. I mean, I did, I worked with Roger Silcox, and he did, he did three coaching videos, and the first two I made with Roger, Roger. Shooting straight, shooting straight competition. Best videos ever, ever made. Can't get them, man. They've gone. No one can get them. Um, there are things that Chris told me, that, that Chris Craddock taught me, because I would, have, I would, for three years, I went to Chris Craddock's house every night for three hours. Roger would drop me there. He'd go off shopping with his wife, Noreen, and I'd spend three hours with Chris. And, and believe me, his library was incredible. And I was so fortunate. But Chris has told me things that aren't actually now in any books. And someone said, so, long story, again, AJ De Rossa, Nick, and the uh, Northwoods Collective have been so supportive, and they have now confirmed that they will support me in writing and publishing the book. So, again, I, I am just, I'm just so lucky to get these breaks in time. And, and I go back to Roger and Chris, and I tell people now, and I adamantly say, I'm no genius. Never have been. I'm no genius. But I tell you what, I was so lucky because I've been taught by genius. These, these, these men were just were so generous, giving me this, this imp that they gave me all the information they made me. But most importantly, both of them, both Chris and Roger said, now, you mustn't be clones of us. You've got to do your own thing and you've got to develop what, what you know, we've given you. And again, I've just been hugely fortunate. And now I come to America, great place to be, loving it. We've just got, it's just brilliant time for me. And then what comes along? Nick, AJ DeRosa, and someone says, we actually want to help you publish your book. So I'm, I'm really, and, and, and Brian, to be honest, you know, you know, meeting someone like yourself, well, I know we haven't met in the flesh yet, but, you know, being in touch and working, and and there's you that that you're so eager to to get this to keep it going, as I said. You know, if 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 it wasn't for people like you and Nick um, that enabled maybe uh, me to broadcast um, those things that the other men give me, it will die. So in actual fact, you know, thank you very much for all you guys do. And I would like to say to all your listeners, chaps, you're really lucky here because you've got this great country, you've got the ability to go and hunt and shoot um, and keep, you know, we, we were with Pheasants, you know, with Pheasant Fest, brilliant organisation, Ducks Unlimited. You're so lucky because, trust me, other people don't have any of this. So, you know, keep supporting it. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Keith, congratulations on everything that you've already done and for all the new things that you've got coming up. We'll definitely be on the lookout for your book. Thanks again for spending some time with me after such a long day today. Thank you, Ryan. I'm delighted to have been on, and uh, I'm going to go and finish my beer now. <laughs> Very good. You can learn more about Keith's current projects at his website, keithcoyle.com. 
and I would encourage you to look him up if you're interested in instruction or expert gun fitting. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of A Break in the Action and encourage you to subscribe. Want to hear your voice on a future episode of A Break in the Action? Leave a message, ask a question, or suggest a topic on our listener line at 317-489-0103. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram for more information, discussion, and photos. If you would like to reach Ryan directly, email him at abreakintheaction at gmail.com.